0: Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos, the book of Amos, page 770 in the Bible provided for you. It's just fine to take a moment and use the index at the head of your Bible to find this short book in our Old Testament, the book of Amos. Well, it is Go Week. Our theme is, in a word, harvest. Next week, Uh, Pastor Jason will preach from that text in Matthew, where Jesus tells us to pray for laborers for the harvest. Doesn't even just tell us to get about reaping a harvest or going into the harvest, but he tells us first to pray for laborers. Presumably the Lord's the one who sends them out. He's at work. We need him even for our part in his work. Well, this morning we look to the book of Amos, to capture a vision of that harvest one day. This week, a harvest for God's people. Next week, a harvest of God's people. And we need this vision that Amos will give to us because the ground is hard. It's hard around us. It was hard in us before the Lord broke it, miraculously. And it is awfully hard at the ends of the earth, especially where it is the most dark, where the gospel has not reached. The ground is very dark very hard it is only a romantic vision of global missions that a missionary would go and fruit would just start to come no we are invested with our partners in the long hard work of getting the gospel into the languages of people who don't have it and then preached and the church established in places where there is no gospel preaching church we are about that and the book of amos Maybe surprisingly so in our Old Testament is no small part of how God will motivate us to stay our course. It is hard to imagine a harvest in hard ground, but we will use our God-given imaginations with his help. Let's read together Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said... Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all on it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? declares the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. And I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And this is God's word for us this morning. Well, well, quite a chapter. Uh, Cuts about in half, dark and light, uh, hard and sad and terrifying and bright and beautiful and glorious. If we were to have read the entire book, the entire book is like the first half of chapter 9. It may be like watching a film. It was suggested to me this week where It's an hour long and the first 59 minutes are just doom and gloom. And the sun comes out in the last minute. Oh, it's good that the sun came out. It says something about the God that we have. In chapters 1 through 9, verses 10 say something about the God we have. And we need a vision of both sides, if that's even an appropriate way to speak of him. His justice and his mercy. Well, let's begin by speaking about and getting to know this man, Amos. Who is Amos and why should we listen to him? Well, Amos was a farmer and a fig tree grower. He worked in the fields and he worked the trees. He was not a student of theology, although he was and as much as every person of God, is a theologian, and we're all students of God, he was that. But he hadn't gone to seminary, how about that? He wasn't trained like among Israel's leaders. There's a few passages we can turn to. Amos is easy enough, so you, you can listen, that's just fine, but I'll also tell you where I'm going. Look at the first page of Amos, verses 1, verse 1 of chapter 1. We find out a little bit about him. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So there he is, the shepherd. We find out from chapter 7, take a right a few pages. As you read the book, you get some insight into who he is and how he got about the work that he does as a prophet. In verse 14, uh, an opponent is questioning his uh, place to address the leaders in Israel in the way that he does. Verse 14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. See, that's his line. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. That's Amos. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. There it is. That was my job. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people, Israel. And so that's what he has been about doing a fig tree dresser, a shepherd. He lived at the border of Israel and Judah, ten of Israel's tribes to the north, and the two that broke off, Judah just to the south, and he's in Judah, the northern part, on the edge of Israel and Judah. He lives at a time of great prosperity. With human eyes, everything seems to be going well in his day. Uh, Jeroboam to the north is led. Uh, significantly and successfully, humanly speaking, and there is great prosperity and wealth in the land, but he also lives in a time of great idolatry and great injustice against humanity. That wealth has led to apathy and Jeroboam, a bad king, has allowed idolatry to sneak in and become the dominant religion of Israel, and the people of God are worshipping other gods. And as it happens, the worship of other gods, inevitably made in the image of humankind, who are sinful, leads to profoundly disastrous consequences for relationships, which we will see the way that humans are treating one another. False worship and cruelty one to another go hand in hand. And Amos lives in a day of false worship and in a day of great and tremendous cruelty. He was called a prophet to be a prophet by the Lord, and he was put to work speaking to Israel to the north. And his is a message that we need today uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, in the first place, uh, whatever was going wrong in Israel ought not go wrong in the church. For with Jesus' coming, as we'll see, God has brought about the change that the old covenant could not bring about. We are a new and a different kind of community. We are the the dawning of the new creation in this world, that second half of the book of Amos. But also, Amos is a man who goes to a hard place to preach the word of God. And he goes as a man compelled by a great promise of harvest, fruitfulness, a whole new creation in which righteousness dwells. And so my prayer for us this morning, in particular on this occasion of Go Week, global emphasis, global outreach week, in which we train our attention on Jesus' great commission for us to go, some to send, some actually to go, my prayer is that some of you would go to the world's hardest places because you see the harvest that God has promised. And you will not go without that vision, because the hardest places with merely human eyes are impossible places. They are the dumbest places to go, and the last places we ought to send our sons and our daughters. But the hardest places and the darkest places, if God is faithful to his word, are not unsafe in the big picture, and they are perfectly strategic, even obvious places to go, If, in fact, what God promises through the prophet Amos is to come about. And Amos is, in this respect, a good model for us. For he responds to God's voice, he picks up, and he goes, and he speaks God's word. Though he may not see any transformation in the people and in God's plan in his own day. May some of you take up and go to hard places with this vision Amos gives us today. Well, we have a two-part vision or two visions, two visions to fuel our global mission, a vision reflected in that first half of chapter 9, and there's more to it, we'll back up, and then that vision in the second half of chapter 9, and we'll cut our time about halfway between them. Two visions, two visions. One, that we might know what we are up against, that we might know how hard it really is, humanly speaking. And another vision to show us how committed our God is to his promises. That we might know the end that he has held out to us. So a vision that we might know what we're up against and a vision that we might know how it ends. A vision that we might know how stubborn humanity is in its idolatry. The hard places really are hard. They're as hard as the human heart is hard. They're as stubborn as the human heart is stubborn. But a second vision that we might know how stubborn, to use that word, or committed God is to his own worship. One vision of sin and death and one vision of salvation and life. Or to get even simpler with two words, a vision of hell and a vision of heaven. Or our outline today, a vision of a scorched earth and a vision of springtime forever. As we'll see... Amos' work in the fields has paid off for him as a preacher. Maybe I could use some more time in the fields. As it is, I'll just borrow Amos' material with all of us this morning as we try to imagine both hell and heaven through his vision. Let's start into that first vision first. A vision of a scorched earth. When we think of the prophets, and we're reading from a prophet now, Amos, We often think, ooh, what are they going to say about the future? Now, they speak about the future. But their first job, which included that, was to speak to the people in the present concerning their present posture toward God on the basis of God's past promise and word in the covenant. Prophets were covenant lawyers they looked at the word of God, and then they looked at the people of God, and then they told the people of God what they should expect, future, based on how they're acting, how they've acted, and what God said in the past. They were, in the first place, just preachers. They were looking at the Bible, and then they were preaching it to their current day audience. And maybe that'd be good news when they got written down, the prophets that we have, they got written down because everything was coming to a head. It was often, often enough, off much of the material, bad news, for they looked at the covenant With its blessings for obedience and its cursings for disobedience. They looked at the people and they saw disobedience. Enough that it was time to take drastic measures. And the prophets did all kinds of drastic things we won't get into. But this prophet has some tools of his own up his sleeve as a preacher. A vision of scorched earth. It's It's about that dark. He preaches to Israel. He's called to preach to Israel. But as we'll go back now to the first chapter, we'll give you a little tour of Amos. He actually doesn't start in Israel. I'm going to give you a tour, oh so brief a tour, of the book up to chapter 9. He begins by circling Israel with judgments against the nations. There's eight nations. He, he judges uh, the five nations, Gentile nations, and then Judah, and then he lands on Israel let's consider what for thus says the Lord verse 3 for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron sold their uh, sold their the people they conquer into slavery cruel victories and this is in the first place a judgment against damascus and hear it at the sound of a roar look back there at verse two missed giving that to you the lord roars from zion all right so let's get the volume up let's make sure we're hearing this with the right filter on the lord roars from zion and utters his voice from jerusalem the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of carmel withers For three transgressions against Damascus, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. A punishment against Damascus, verse 6, thus says the Lord, a roaring, thundering cadence of judgment carries on. For three transgressions of Gaza, because they carried into exile whole peoples to deliver them up. Purchasing, killing people, uh, uh, invading, taking the people and delivering them over, he says, verse 6, to Edom. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. This is a lying and deceiving people doing the same and selling their people into slavery, their victor, the, the people they conquered into slavery. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword. He cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Edom, that people descended from Esau, brother to Jacob. Edom, shorthand for the nations often enough in the Old Testament, hot with anger, his anger tore perpetually, tearing his enemies apart in rage. Verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, and they might enlarge their border Preying upon the weakest and most vulnerable of people, not only pregnant women, but the very babies inside their wombs. For three transgressions of Moab, chapter two, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned lime, the bones of the king of Edom. So even after having killed the king, they're not done with that. Their vengeance is so strong, and their anger is so hot, and their fury is so terrible. That they would even burn the bones. Desecrating graves. They're not even done when they kill. This is God's judgment on the nations. In Israel, the first hearers would think, well, obvious enough. And then verse 4 of chapter 2. For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept my statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. In verse 6, For three transgressions of Israel now, now having circled the land with judgment on the nations, the judgment moves in and lands on God's very people. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who is as strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty... See, this is personal now. We're getting three times, four times as much material aimed at Israel. Proof that this is where it was going all along. Led you forty years in the wilderness and to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not indeed so. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy, silencing God's voice. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor he who rides the horse save his life. He who is stout of hearing among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. A very bad day indeed. Encircling Israel, he's judged all the nations with fire. So I will send a fire upon the house. So I will send a fire. So I will send a fire. So I will send a fire. fire. Oh, he'll get to that with his people. We have the rest of the book. Now it's a dark, dark day. Chapters 1 and 2, he circles his people with judgment. Chapters 3 through 6, summarize it memorably. He sings over them at their funeral. Look at me in chapter 5. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise. This is his song. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. Israel was greatly, greatly presumptuous. Verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. If a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned on his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. In other words, the day of the Lord for you will not be light but darkness. But they were so blind, you see. So, worshipping other gods, neglecting the law of God, silencing the word of God and the prophets, um, raping, molesting, killing, grinding the head of the poor into the ground, Imagine Noah's day. Noah the righteous looks around and it's violence everywhere. The whole earth was filled with violence in his day. And the Lord judges the earth and puts Noah and his family in a little ark. It's reset. Noah comes out on the other on the other side. And sin comes from Noah just the same. Look, we are here. Well, the interesting thing is God has come to Abraham with a promise. And so he came to Abraham with a promise that He would bless the nations through a son of Abraham. What's so so hard about this to hear is how hard it really will be to bring about the blessing of God on the earth. To reverse the curse of sin that came from Adam. Here we have the very people of God who have been delivered through the Red Sea. Given God's gracious and holy law that they might relate with him. Priests that might mediate his presence and offer the forgiveness of sins. They've been given so much. Even the promises to Abraham. And it goes like this. So yes, the ground is hard outside of Israel. And we don't miss those judgments on other nations. But look at Israel. Given so much and yet no different. The word of God is not at work in the world because the people of God have silenced their own prophets. So it's actually probably harder out there at the ends of the earth than you thought when you walked in this morning. Unless God works, we grind the head of the poor into the ground and come up with untold gods to worship besides the one true and living God. And this is a story of how it goes. Amos took up and preached this message to a presumptuous, idolatrous and cruel people, creatively offering them the song that God would sing in lamentation at their funeral. Chapters seven and eight gives us a vision of scorched earth, among other visions. We have a vision of a locust storm forming, and Amos prays to God, and God relents. He won't do that. But in verse four, he showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. The Lord touches the earth and it melts. It's a a picture of God's all-consuming glory against sin in judgment. There's an image of a fruit basket. Verse 8, this is what the Lord showed me. A basket of summer fruit. And Amos said, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere and there is silence. What does all this teach us? Well, it teaches us that God is is just and a just judge. His judgments are impartial. He is judging impartially. They thought because of religious ritual and historic association with God by means of the covenant, which include cursings, that they would be safe, that God's judgment will fall on them the same, for they have abandoned and broken the covenant. God's judgment is fixed. I will not revoke. I will not revoke. And God's judgment is just. We're reminded several times throughout the book that he's the one who set the moon and the sun and the stars in the sky. In other words, he's before it all. He owns it all. It's all his. You're his. And this is his prerogative. And he is the standard. God is just and a just judge. Uh, Secondly, that uh, the nations and us and all of us are hopeless on our own. The nations are hopeless and helpless, and so apparently is Israel. Uh, Genesis 12 and God's promise to Israel is in the background. The Exodus is in the background and mentioned, and yet they remain stubborn and they grind down into the same problem that Adam left us with from the garden and that we saw all around us in Noah's day. And then third, we come to the conclusion after hearing all of this, that if there is to be any hope for humanity, if there is to be any hope for you and for me, if there is to be any hope for your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your neighbor or boss or colleague, the best person on the street and the hardest criminal in town, it will have to be the Lord who does it. If there is any hope for sinners at the very ends of the earth, who are sincerely worshiping other gods. I say that word sincerely because we can tend to romanticize life at the ends of the earth. Good people who would turn to God on their own if just they had a word. The nicest people. As humans, relating with humans, we can appreciate anyone made in God's image and see the good in that sense in any person. And yet we must say with the Bible the verdict that is God's verdict on humanity, and that is guilty as charged. We're guilty in Adam, and we are corrupted and sinful. The idols that we worship come from our own human hearts, and we prefer them to the one true and living God who has revealed himself to us in all of creation. If there is to be any hope for humanity given the justice Of God and His determination to display His justice, then God will have to intervene. We have a vision of scorched earth. The church that is to send a missionary needs a vision of scorched earth, needs a vision of hell, needs a vision of the justice of God, needs a vision of what sinners are owed. And we also need a vision of heaven. We need a vision of God breaking in, intervening unilaterally to change the situation. And if your vision of scorched earth is biblical, then you can embrace this vision too. Now a vision of springtime forever. That's how I'm putting it. Oh, let me read this again. Verse 11 of chapter 9. And that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Oh, what a different day. And repair its breaches and repair its ruins and rebuild it as in the day of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Who does this? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant the vineyard and drink their wine, and I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God." Well, when we comment these days on the weather, or at least me, I'm usually talking about how it feels when I'm outside between my house and my car. Or to shake it up a little bit between the car and my house when I go home. Um, It's really just nice to have nice weather for those minutes that we spend outside. Now, if you run or you're active and there are other reasons to be outside, it's still different than these folks in this day. The weather wasn't about being comfortable while you're outside. It was about eating food, having food. It was about feeding your family. It was, about, it was about living. And so this is a picture of springtime forever. It's coming up and the earth is overflowing with bounty. Just look at this vision of heaven, if you, you will. Look at the king. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. There is an an important promise, you can listen, uh, as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Why does David come up here? Why does David appear constantly in our New Testaments? Because everything that God will do that's good for you and me, that he has ever promised to Adam and to Eve that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, to Abraham that one of his sons from his line would would be the, the, the means of blessing for all the families of the earth. Anything that God has ever promised that's good that will come to you and me comes to us through this promise to David. The period of the judges was wicked, and we had cycles of, of grinding cruelty and sin. Israel gets a king in David, and he's, he's a decent king. but He's a sinner in many ways. But God made a promise to David, and God's promise to David is why David is so important. And it's why David comes up here. God's promise to David is why Amos can preach that message of judgment based on The old covenant given at Sinai, because God has more to do for his people and for his name than he intends through that covenant, which is in fact temporary. There is something that he intends to do for his people, indeed the world, through David, one Israelite, one son of David. David says, and this is in 2 Samuel 7, Now I see I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. You remember the tabernacle, and that's where God's presence was. And David thinks his king, well, I should, I should build God a house. He deserves a house. But that same night, God wasted no time. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? But he's going to use this opportunity to advance his own plan. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel, from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. How good is this? From time to time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You say, I need a house. I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and, I will, and he shall be to me a son And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so David wants to build God a house. Like the tent's not good enough for God. We're going to build him a house of cedar. God says, time out. I never asked for a house of cedar. I'm going to build you a house. And by saying, I'm going to build you a house, he means a dynasty. From your line will come kings and kings, and there will be one to sit on a throne forever. He'll rule from shore to shore, the whole earth his rule will be permanent, and it will be a righteous rule, and no one will harm my people, for his, his rule will be righteous, and the people will be righteous in connection with, with him. It'll be wonderful. And David understands what he's heard. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house. For a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. This is what he means by calling it instruction for mankind. He's, he's hearing God's promise to him that God will build a dynasty through David, the king. And he's hearing that as instruction for all mankind or the charter for all mankind. So, what God set out to do in creation that was corrupted and detoured according to his providence in the fall he made a promise to Adam and to Eve that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent an indication that God would have his way in the end and justice would be meted out and the curse presumably would be turned back and we find out some more detail on this when God comes to Abraham we find out that promise is going to run through Abraham and not through Abraham Everyone from Abraham, for it's Jacob and it's not Esau, remember. But then Jacob's children form 12 nations. And we know that, that the one who will crush the head of the serpent will come through Abraham's line, tribe of Judah, one of those 12 tribes. And it's through that one that blessing will come to all the families of the earth. Now how is it that blessing will come to Abraham and his children, that nation, but also through that nation to all the families and nations of the earth. And there's that little line in Genesis where he promises him land, but then he says he's going to give him all the lands, plural of the. It seems that, that even in Genesis, the expectation was much bigger than a little bit of geography and a, and a nation state in Israel. And so as the prophets, look back, as Amos looks back on God's promise to Abraham, he knows that God is going to bless the whole earth through someone from Abraham's line. And we know where that's going to come from. It's going to come from someone from David's line. But you look around and, and the kings that came from David are all rotten. And the people being led by rotten kings are all rotten. And the priesthood is lost and corrupted and the word of God is muted. It's dark on the earth, not just because it's dark among the nations, but because among this very nation to whom God has made all these promises, it is just as dark. And they're more culpable because of all that they have been been given. But Amos can look out at his own day in every direction and offer the judgment that he does. And it's true that judgment is coming to all sinners. But then offer this incredible promise. We've looked at the king. God will restore the booth of David, his dilapidated house. They'll rebuild the cities. A first fulfillment of all of this would be the exile. As God's people are exiled, as the uh, Assyria comes to capture them and take them away. This actually happens about 40 years after Amos is preaching. But when the people come back to rebuild the temple and inhabit the land, nothing quite like this happens. Amos is looking forward to their return from exile, but with a vision that is way better than what actually happens. And they know it when they get back. They'll repair the breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild as in the days of old. And look at the people now, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name. You see, after hearing about Genesis 12 and God's promise through Abraham and considering his purpose for humanity from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, now this makes perfect sense. It is through Abraham and through David's line that God will do something for men and women from all nations, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom, to whom slaves were sold, conquered peoples. Edom, who is among the list of the nations. Edom, that stands in as shorthand for everything that's wrong with the world out there violence and cruelty and false worship, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Google it or search in your Bible software Edom's not positive. This is God doing something, reaping a harvest in a hard, hard place. And really, that's shorthand for all the nations, all the nations that are called by my name. There is a certain equality and intimate before God, and intimacy with God, Israel and Gentiles, nations together in one, one people, that's what it appears to, to project, before God, called by my name, marriage imagery. God is calling men and women for his name from among the ends of the earth, in the hardest places, even Edom, and they will call upon his name from the ends of the earth, declares the Lord. How will this happen? The Lord who does this? Looked at the king. We look at the people. and Look at the creation. The plowman shall overtake the reaper. Oh, this is incredible. The land is giving and giving and giving and you can't collect the food coming out of the ground fast enough before it's coming back behind you. Springtime forever, I'm describing it as. The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed... He can't, can't get the grapes fast enough. The mountains will drip with sweet wine. It's just overflowing. The mountains are flowing with, with wine. This is a picture of super abundance. This is a picture of Eden again. God with his people. God providing incredible bounty and their enjoyment of it. They shall rebuild the ruined cities. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. It's abundant, it's marked by enjoyment, and it is permanent. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never be uprooted again. Plant them in their land. Well, they will be exiled 40 years later, and they will, an initial installment of this, make their way back to the land. Oh, but it'll never be like this. And they're not exactly there now. We've looked at the king, looked to his people, we've looked at the creation. And now we look around. And we find a church in Greer, South Carolina, singing praises to the God of heaven, having renounced our idols and our... Various forms of self-salvation, having turned from ourselves into the living God to worship and to serve Him. Imperfectly sure. As sinners, sure, let's be humble about that. But let's not shortchange God. He really has changed our hearts. He really has given us one voice to praise Him. That really is a miracle. He has called us by His name. The remnant from among Edom. The nations called by His name. And James looked around in his day. Turn with me to the book of Acts. In the New Testament, we have our four Gospels, and then we have the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. James looked around, and he thought about what Amos said. When Gentiles, those from among the various nations, began praising God and believing the Gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit, there was tension among Jews What exactly is this? Well, Peter had preached that the old covenant would be obsolete. Those food laws don't apply anymore. They were wrestling with how all this worked. Peter preached Jesus crucified, buried and raised for sinners. Verse 12, they come together to ponder these things and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them through the, in the, among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God visited the Gentiles to take them from, uh, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. A few comments. He says what Amos was proclaiming is happening now in the ingathering of Gentiles and men and women from among the nations who were judged among the nations, but who are now turning miraculously to believe in the one true and living God through his son Jesus by the Holy Spirit. What Amos was preaching and promised is happening right now. And of course, that goes back to God's promise to Abraham. Now we kind of know what that will look like. It's happening in front of us. And of course, that is consistent with God's purpose for humanity. He's making a new humanity, Jew and Gentile in one people. The apostles will work all this out in their letters. But notice there are a few things that are different about his quote. He says he will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. The tent of David. But Amos said the booth of David. Now, we don't need to be troubled about this. This is just simply an interpretation of what Amos was preaching and saying, David, in using the language of Booth, may likely have been referring to David's dilapidated and troubled house. Nevertheless, remember the word play. Because when God came to David and said, I'm going to build for you a house, and he meant a dynasty, it was after David said, why don't I build you a temple, God? Well, what's happening right here? The tent of David, the temple of David, the dwelling place of God in Jerusalem, Now is Jesus who says he's the true temple and his people are a temple. In other words, in the coming of the the son of David, this king, not only do we have a righteous ruler, but we have a priest who brings us perfect access to God. Oh, here we do full circle now. God has made David a true temple after all. He has made Jesus the very temple of the living God for us. And the word Gentiles here, he swaps out Edom for Gentiles. Again, interpreting why Edom was in that, in that comment by Amos in the first place. And the word possess isn't here. But in Amos' preaching, he says you'll possess the remnant of Edom. That's conquest language. Like taking land. Taking the people. And I presume that as James considers Jesus' great commission in the background here to go to all the nations... It is a kind of a conquest commission. Go and take. Go and proclaim the gospel and I will give to you the nations. God is calling men and women from among the names to himself. They saw it in their day and we see it in our day just the same. Well, My prayer for us this morning is that some of us will be willing to go to the hardest places... On the basis of a vision of the God who provides a harvest just as he promised. Consider this. That without James's interpretation on that day. At a merely human level. We would not have salvation among the nations. It would have stopped with Israel right there. You and I would not be Christians if James hadn't read his Bible. And believed what Amos said. And if Amos And prophets like him hadn't opened their mouths. In God's providence, all of that happened. And in God's providence, he is raising up some from among churches just like ours to go out into impossible places, hard places, where nothing grows. Where God intends to perform the miracle of conversion and create a Christian and create a church because he is calling people to himself. He has called nations, men and women from among them, by his own name. Well, James can do this with the kind of confidence and gusto that he does because Peter, before him, has preached the gospel. It's clear enough how God does this now. We go from judgment to salvation in Amos. But all the prophets in Amos doesn't give us the whole story. He links it to David well, who is Jesus but in, 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 in Peter's preaching? The son of David who has died but who unlike David is not still in his tomb but has been raised from the dead. The son of David, the greater son has come. He has lived a righteous life. He has died. He has been buried and he did not stay dead but he has been raised from the dead. The firstborn of a new creation. The first fruits of a new creation. And as we look around, as James did, and we see men and women believing among our own people and among the ends of the earth, we can go farther into the darkness with the confidence that God will keep going. For this is where everything is headed. Yes, we are up against incredible challenges. And those who set out to translate the Bible, and any of you who will go down and give your life to the Riau some 2,000 islands on which there is no church, Go believing that though this is an impossibly hard place, we have a God who promises to bring a very, very great harvest. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you for this vision of heaven where we have in this new creation... No ethereal, mere spiritual place, but this very creation, once it will be burned up and judged, and a new creation will dawn in a place, for it has already dawned in a people, and it dawned first in a person, in the Lord Jesus. Well, Father, you have begun this work in Jesus, and you are continuing this work through us, And he will come again again one day to judge the living and the dead and to receive those for whom he took the judgment into his kingdom. And we pray that you would raise up some from among our church, even in this very season of preaching and praying, to go to a very hard place, even those islands among the Ria Malayu, where we know you are calling men and women to yourself. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.